Welcome to Freeway this morning and a happy Mother's Day. Um, My name is Andy. I'm here for a couple more weeks filling in for our senior pastor, Mason. And uh, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel together. And last week, we looked at a passage from chapter 9 that talked about a series of misunderstandings that Jesus' disciples had made. Particularly, uh, Jesus uh, is talking here in last week's passage about God's hospitality, uh, which of course is limitless, but the disciples had some questions around exactly what the extent of it would be. We talked about the cost of hospitality and considered what we might have to give up in order to show God's hospitality to others. This week, uh, we're wrapping up chapter 9, looking at this rather interesting little section of the book. Uh, We talked last week about how The structure of the Bible with headings and uh, chapters and verse numbers weren't part of the original uh, manuscripts, but were added later. Here we have another example where the placement of chapters doesn't make much sense because although it's the end of the chapter, this begins the middle section of Luke's gospel. Where we began with the narratives of Jesus' birth and childhood, then we had his Galilean ministry, Now we read about him traveling to Jerusalem, where he'll eventually encounter the temple leadership, die and be resurrected. Scholars have tried to put together Jesus' journey uh, in Luke and found it to be a rather unusual one. When you map the route that Jesus and his disciples took in Luke's gospel, it seems unnecessarily complicated, leading some to believe that Luke just took a bunch of stories of Jesus on the road and mashed them together into this one Uh, this one journey to Jerusalem. In this way, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem comes as the climax of the book. And this becomes more apparent when we notice that the other gospel writers don't seem to have Jesus taking the same journey. But some scholars still affirm this uh, travel narrative in Luke's gospel and guess that maybe he just went a really unusual way, uh, a really circuitous kind of route. As Jesus begins his journey to the city, we're going to take a look at the passages here and consider a bit further the idea of the cost of discipleship as Luke writes about it. So Luke begins this passage, making it clear that this is a new section of the book. He begins in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Australian New Testament scholar Brendan Byrne writes that the phrase set his face, communicates the sense of a fixed determination against strong temptation to do the opposite. The phrase strikes a note that will sound throughout the gospel from here on, something of the aura of joyful celebration that attended the early ministry in Galilee falls away. A tougher, more demanding Jesus now emerges, a person on the way to a difficult destiny. As well as acceptance, there are warnings of judgment and a heightening sense of crisis. Will the city of David be hospitable to its messianic visitor or not? And if not, what will be the outcome within the wider design of God? As we've talked about many times already, Luke is particularly communicating to his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. And so here in the beginning of this new section, he makes three deliberate comparisons to the prophet Elijah to reinforce the point. In Jewish tradition, both Elijah and Moses were proto-Messianic figures, which is to say they both represented something of the coming Messiah. For this reason, both men were meant to appear before the arrival of the Messiah, which we looked at in our first week together when we talked about the transfiguration. Elijah, in particular, was considered a Messianic figure because of the power that he wielded while he was on earth. We additionally read that 
He never died. He was simply taken up into heaven. At the beginning of 2 Kings 2, we read, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And once there, we read that everyone seems to know that Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven, except for Elisha, who is his disciple. After much discussion between Elijah and Elisha, we eventually read in verse 11, as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And after that, Elisha becomes the prophet in Elijah's place. You'll notice that the same language is used of Jesus in Luke here. We read that both he and Elijah are about to be taken up, implying something of Jesus' imminent return to heaven. From verse 52, we read that Jesus sent messages ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, the reason for this was uh, political and historical. Uh, you remember that throughout the Hebrew Bible, we have all these records of the Jewish people being invaded by other world powers. And in many cases, people being removed from their homeland as a result. In the early 720s BC, the Assyrian Empire under their king Shalmaneser V, who uh, gave himself the very humble titles of uh, King of the Four Corners of the World, um, also King of the Universe, which I think is a great title to bestow upon yourself. Uh, he invaded Israel, which at the time uh, was just the name for the northern part of the original kingdom, uh, the southern part being called Judah at this time. Assyria had a policy of forced resettlement of the peoples that they colonized, making it more difficult for these people to rebel against them because they were divided. And over time, they lost a sense of independent national identity. So in 722 BC, when Israel was defeated, over 30,000 people were removed and forced to migrate all across the Assyrian empire. The people who were left fought hard to maintain their practices of worship, their language, and their sense of identity. These people are the Samaritans. Over time, the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians and then the Persians overtook the Babylonians. And in 538 BC, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, allowed Jewish people to return to the lands of Israel and Judah. And over the next 110 years, tens of thousands of Jewish people flocked back to their lands in an event that is still called the return to Zion. But in the intervening 200 years, the Jews and the Samaritans had diverged in terms of their styles of worship. This was the source of conflict between the two and the source of much hurt on the part of the Samaritans, who still believed that they had maintained the right and proper worship of God. Today, there are only about a thousand Samaritan people who live in two small communities, uh, one in Israel and another on the West Bank. They believe that the appropriate place to worship God is Mount Gerizim, uh, which is in the West Bank, not the Temple Mountain, which is in Jerusalem. And uh, this was the main source of conflict. So when Jesus, a notorious Jewish rabbi, sends messages to this Samaritan community, saying that he intends to drop in on his way to Jerusalem, 
they assume that he's on his way to worship God there, and so they refuse his request to visit. Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris writes that the Samaritan villagers, seeing that his face was set toward Jerusalem, would have nothing to do with Jesus. Their feud with the Jews was so bitter that they would not help anyone travel to Jerusalem. Though apparently they did not mind receiving Galileans as such, Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian, tells us that Samaritans were not averse to ill-treating pilgrims going up to Jerusalem, even to the extent of murdering them on occasion. The important thing for us to note here is that Jesus was prepared to receive their hospitality, signifying that Jesus was not interested in maintaining this feud about styles of worship. John and James, who you'll remember are nicknamed Sons of Thunder for their brash approach, are less hospitable. A Baptist New Testament scholar from Nagaland in India, who's named Takatemjan Ao, writes, James and John were indignant that offers of fellowship were rejected. We read in verse 54 that their response was to ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Which is not something I've ever asked uh, of the Lord, but perhaps I'll start. Leon Morris tries to give them the benefit of the doubt, writing that there's great faith in Jesus in the question. In the face of the insult to their master, they felt they had only to call for the fire in Jesus' name and it would be given. But this does more credit to their zeal and their devotion to Jesus than their understanding of the nature of Christian service. Importantly here, we have another comparison to Elijah. We read in, in 2 Kings 1 that King Ahaziah sent people to inquire of a foreign god as to whether uh, he would recover from an injury. He actually fell out of a window through a trellis. Uh, that was how he had injured himself. Elijah intercepts the king's messengers to tell them that he'll die in his sickbed because of his idolatry. And so the king sends back a group of 50 soldiers with their captain. In verses 9 to 10, we read this. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So when James and John asked Jesus to do the same, they were expecting to see some kind of righteous anger from Jesus. Instead, Takatemjan writes simply that Jesus rebuked them, but moved on, because he had not come to bring judgment, but salvation. So they go to another village, presumably not a Samaritan one. But Takatemjan continues writing, This incident reminds us of how deeply rooted prejudice and hatred can be, even in those who follow Christ. These disciples, who just earlier had been healing people, were ready to burn down a whole village of Samaritans because some of them rejected Jesus. We need to pray that God will open our eyes to our own entrenched prejudices and deliver us from them. The next section gives us three responses from Jesus to three people looking to follow him. The first person approaches Jesus on the road and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The assumption is that although this person was well-meaning, they hadn't reckoned with the cost that they would have to pay in order to follow Jesus. In this instance, that appears to have been around comfort, or at least a, a place to stay. The second person is a man that Jesus approaches asking him to follow him. 
But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And this seems fairly harsh from Jesus, but Leon Morris tells us that some hold that had the father been a corpse at home or had already been dead, the man would probably not have been with Jesus at all. He would have been occupied with duties connected with the funeral. On this view, his request was to stay at home until his father died. This might have been an indefinite delay and the affairs of the kingdom cannot be put off. But the words have an even greater urgency if the father was dead. The Jews count proper burial as most important. To leave the father unburied was something scandalous. The duty of burial took precedence over the study of the law, the temple service, the killing of the Passover sacrifice, the observance of circumcision. But the demands of the kingdom are more urgent still. Let those without spiritual insight perform the duties that they can do so well. Burial is very much in keeping for the spiritually dead. But a person who has seen the vision of the kingdom must not deny or delay their heavenly calling. The third person says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this is interesting because it offers us a third comparison to Elijah. When Elijah called his disciple Elisha in 1 Kings 19, we read, So Elijah set out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. There were twelve yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him like a cloak. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? From this, we could understand that even though Elijah is an important uh, prophetic figure, Jesus' ministry is that much more urgent and important. On this section, Byrne tells us that Jesus' response to three people who would be his companions on the journey sets a pattern in a rather different direction. He makes clear to the first who offers that following him means a life of wandering with no guaranteed lodging. The second and the third, one called by Jesus, the other offering himself, both want a little space before coming along. Each has important family duties to attend to. In contrast to Elijah, who did allow his disciple Elisha to say goodbye to his parents, Jesus insists that the urgency of the kingdom has priority over family ties. The kingdom is about rescuing human beings for life in a world fast sliding to destruction. Similarly, Takatemjan writes, in all three cases, Jesus' responses spoke of absolute commitment to him. Christians today are still called to follow him with single-minded devotion. So what do we take from all of this? Well, certainly there are some strong words here for us around the cost of following Jesus. It's a good time for us to reflect on whether our faith is a costly one or not. And if not, then why not? The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. This is a man who actually chose to return to Germany during World War II because he felt that it was his obligation as a Christian and a German to work against the government of Adolf Hitler. He was involved in smuggling Jewish people out of the country 
and even in a plot to assassinate Hitler himself. He was eventually jailed and then killed when it became apparent to the German government that the Allied forces were about to defeat them. There's an, an incredible collection of his writings from his time in prison. Uh, it's called Letters and Papers from Prison, which talk about his commitment to Christ and to his people. In The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer draws a distinction between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. On the idea of cheap grace, he writes, grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? But he continues, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. By contrast, Bonhoeffer writes, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a person will gladly go and sell all that they have. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all their goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a person will pluck out the eye that causes them to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which someone must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a person their life. And it's grace because it gives a person the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dare a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Certainly, Bonhoeffer's life was an example of costly grace. At the time when things began to get dire in Germany, Bonhoeffer was in the U.S. on a book tour. He was offered a well-paying position at an American university and would likely have been able to bring his family over to the U.S. as well. There was really no need for him to return, and yet this was where the call of God led him. Where might God be calling you this morning? In my own life, I've known the call of God to be costly. Um, my first ministry position came just a couple of years uh, into me being a Christian. Um, I'd been visiting another church with a kid who had recently come to faith through a camping ministry uh, that I'd been serving with. And the pastor of this church offered me a position as their youth pastor, which I really was not interested in uh, at the time. But I went and I talked to my pastor about it nonetheless, uh, who said to me, it probably wasn't wise for me to jump into a ministry position in a church that I didn't know much about on the complete other side of town uh, from all the people that I knew with zero training or experience. Uh, and he was right. But he offered me an internship uh, at Q Baptist. And uh, unfortunately, uh, he became quite ill, and this meant that my first pastoral meeting uh, was his last. Um, we had 18 months or so without a pastor, which was tremendously difficult. 
and it, it didn't really get a whole lot easier when a new pastor arrived. Um, I ended up quitting the job, actually, about two and a half years in because I just couldn't hack it any longer. And it was around this time that God began encouraging me toward full-time ministry. I remember sitting and praying, reminding God how terrible those couple of years of interning had been. Um, when I eventually applied to a ministry position, it was evident that God had been at work. Uh, but the first couple of years there were enormously difficult as well. When I look back, I, I don't especially want to repeat any of those experiences if I can avoid it. But I can see that God was at work and that both me and the community I was a part of were transformed by the Spirit but only because we were prepared to endure the hardship of pursuing God at that time. And I think that this is the thing to remember when we talk about costly grace or the cost of discipleship. It's that we, we partner with God in the transformation of ourselves and our world. God won't forcibly bring change upon us, but if we believe that the Christian life is about living in a way that we were designed to live, that it's in some senses a return to what life ought to have been like, then it stands to reason that the outcome of persevering in faith is positive change, at least in a broader kingdom sense. Paul writes in the book of Romans that, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Ultimately, our great hope is in Jesus' return and his recreation of all creation into something that mirrors God's original intention without sin. John writes in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. So as God works towards this grand restoration and recreation of all things, God calls us to partner with him and actually indwells each of us by his spirit in order to empower us for what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. Saying that we now live as ambassadors of God saying uh, that it's as if God is making his appeal to creation to come back into right relationship with himself through us. So as God's followers, we have an incredible opportunity to be a part of the salvation of the world, but there is a cost involved. Put simply, that cost is our entire lives. We need to orient our entire lives around this call to know and to partner with God to see the recreation of heaven and earth. So to conclude, let me ask again, is your faith this morning a costly one? And is it one that is transformative, something that changes yourself and the world around you? If not, then why not? What needs to change today in order to embrace a costly grace kind of faith 
so that you too can participate in this great work that God is doing in the world. Let's pray together. Loving God, we give thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, who has died so that we might have life. We give thanks, Christ, for your resurrection that has meant that we can now become members of the family of God. We're grateful too, Holy Spirit, for your indwelling and your empowerment that means that we are able to serve and to partner with God in the transformation of this world. Jesus, we look forward to your return and we pray that that you would help us and continue to empower us to be people who serve you and to show the hospitality of God uh, to all people. May you continue to bless us as we go out into our weeks and and remind us, Spirit, of our need to engage in a a costly kind of faith. What kinds of ways, God, are you encouraging us, um, spurring us on further in terms of our own transformation and the transformation of the world around us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.